In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. The Dow continued its weekly winning streak with another milestone closing above 28,000 for the first time, 28,004 spot 89 to be exact. That's a gain of 222 spot 93. You know, I'm sure everybody is getting their Dow 30,000 hats ready because obviously that's not too far off now from 28,000. But it's not just the Dow that is uh, setting records and uh, crossing milestones. The NASDAQ, another record high today, up 61 spot 81, closing at 85.40 spot 83. That's the first time the NASDAQ has been above 8,500. The S&P also making new highs up 23 spot 83. 3120 spot 46 is the close. This is the first time the S&P has been above 3,100. The only major index really not uh, enjoying the party, although it was up again today, is the Russell 2000. Uh, Still not quite near an all-time record high. That index is at 1596. Again, the Russell is the one that most reflects uh, the domestic economy, and it is the domestic economy uh, that is in a lot of trouble. In fact, the Dow rose today despite more weak economic data that was released during the day. Uh, Probably the weakest data point of them all was on industrial 
production. It was supposed to drop again after falling 0.4 in September, and they did revise this September drop to minus 0.3% from minus 0.4, but instead of a 0.4 drop in October, which was the consensus forecast, we dropped by 0.8, so twice as large a decline. In fact, I think you have to go back to March of uh, 2009 uh, to see a larger decline uh, than that in uh, industrial production. And capacity utilization really contracted as well from 77.5, it went all the way down to 76. And we also got more uh, weak news on business inventories, which were revised lower. And I think that in industrial production and some other weak data points that had come out caused the Atlanta Fed to reduce its forecast for Q4 GDP all the way down to 0.3. It was at 1%, and now it's at 0.3, which is close to zero. And in fact, it's very likely that we could end up with a negative print for Q4 GDP, which means we're halfway to recession. But despite the weakening economy, the stock market continues to roar, and Donald Trump continues to claim credit for the rising stock market and holding the stock market out as evidence of the success of his presidency. In fact, there's only two things that the president really has to brag about. One is the stock market making new highs, and the other is the low unemployment rate. But it's very ironic because that's what Obama had, and that's what Trump criticized Obama for hiding behind. See, when Obama was president, we had a rising stock market and a falling unemployment rate. And basically, for the same reasons, we have a rising stock market and a falling unemployment rate now. The stock market was going up because of the Fed, because of artificially low interest rates and quantitative easing. Well, that's exactly why it's going up now. Artificially low interest rates and quantitative easing. The only difference is the other driver of the stock market that we didn't have back then Uh, is the talk of a trade deal. In fact, every day this week, there was another headline, either it was a tweet uh, by Larry Kudlow, uh, that a trade deal is imminent, right? That we're about to sign a deal, that everything looks good. And every time, uh, you know, Kudlow tweets, the stock market goes up. And in fact, as long as the White House can goose the stock market by pretending there's a trade deal, well, then they're going to keep pretending. I mean, there's no incentive to actually deliver a deal when they get all the benefits by just pretending. Again, the risk is they actually deliver a deal and it's a buy the rumor, sell the fact. So why have a fact if they'll keep buying the rumor, right? If you can cry wolf indefinitely, and even though there's never a wolf, you know, the villagers keep buying stocks, then you might as well do it. Although I think Trump's plan is actually kind of clever because, you know, initially they were teasing about an actual deal, right? A substantive deal, like a major deal. And when that fell through, instead of admitting defeat, they they claimed victory by now saying, well, we're going to get phase one, which is just going to be the precursor to this big, great deal that, that I've been promising. Uh, But I think the other benefit of this phase one BS 
besides being able to have a deal that doesn't actually amount to anything but still claim credit for doing something when you did nothing. But I think what might happen is when the market finally stops rallying on all the fake news of a phase one trade deal and the market starts to go down, the president could actually sign a phase one deal. And then he and Cudlow and his buddies uh, can repeat the game all over again by teasing about phase two, right? Because as soon as we get phase one, then we're going to keep getting all of these tweets about how a phase two deal is just around the corner and how it's going to be the greatest deal ever. And they'll try to continue to inflate this bubble. But I think the talk of a trade deal is secondary to the effects of the Fed, both the three rate cuts that we've already had and the quantitative easing that continues And despite the Fed's indication that it's on pause, I think everybody knows that the Fed is going to keep cutting rates. So the market is rising today for the same reasons it rose under Obama. Trump knew that that was phony. He knew that the stock market was a big, fat, ugly bubble. And he called out the president. And that's one of the reasons or the main reason, I think, that he got elected. The same thing with unemployment. Right. He called out Obama for hiding behind those fake, phony, fraudulent unemployment numbers. He said the unemployment rate wasn't five percent. It was 20 percent. It was 30 percent. It was 40 percent because the numbers weren't real. Well, they're the same numbers now. It's the same government department that's calculating the unemployment numbers under Trump that was calculating it under Obama. So if the numbers are just as fake now as they were then, except now, again, Trump is embracing those fake numbers because that's all he has. Because despite the empty campaign promise of making America great again, he has done nothing. Nothing has changed under Trump. It's the same phony economy, the same phony statistics, and the only thing keeping it going is the Fed. Right? And the fact that investors still don't understand reality, they still believe the Fed or they simply have a vested interest not to disbelieve the Fed. So everybody pretends everything is great and the bubble keeps on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But ultimately, it is going to pop. All bubbles pop. And so will this one, too. In fact, there has been a lot of signs that the bubbles are popping. You know, I talk about it on this podcast on the recent IPOs and the IPO bubble having popped. And even though you have all of these stocks uh, making record highs or the indexes, the vast majority of stocks that comprise those indexes are not making new highs, right? The leadership is concentrated in these big name stocks, but you have a lot of these IPOs like the Ubers and the Lyfts uh, that have been clobbered uh, and the whole IPO pipeline really shut down uh, you know, with the fiasco behind WeWork. In fact, WeWork came out again with their losses uh, for the quarter, and it was $1.2 billion in one quarter. That was the worst quarter yet, and this company was about to go public with that type of numbers. In fact, the most startling thing about the losses is the $1.2 billion loss actually exceeded their revenue. 
they lost more than a dollar for every dollar in revenue the company generated. In fact, today their bond prices, I hit a new record low. Uh, you know, so this bubble has popped, but also I haven't talked about this bubble uh, recently, although I talked about it when it was inflating and now it's completely burst. Uh, that is the bubble in the cannabis stocks, the pot stocks. These things are getting smoked. I mean, look what happened to weed yesterday. That is the symbol for canopy growth over in Toronto, W-E-E-D. That stock was down like 14% yesterday on bad earnings, down another 3% today. The stock is barely holding 20 at 20 spot 29. The high on that stock was almost 71, uh, not too many months ago. Look at the debacle du jour today. Aurora Cannabis, I mean, that stock came out with earnings today, and it was down 17%. It was down yesterday, too, in sympathy with weed, uh, but that stock now at $2.73. It was above $10. The high was $10.32. So you have the, 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 you know, the marquee names in the cannabis uh, universe. Those stocks are down 70% or more, but then you have some of the smaller players down 80 90%. Uh, so the air coming out of of that bubble. And so these are warning signs. I mean, if you think uh, uh, popping bubbles are going to be contained uh, to the IPO market or to the pot stocks, no. All the bubbles are going to pop, including the total bubble in the U.S. stock market overall, not just in these sectors, but the entire market is in a bubble. In fact, the bond market is in a bubble. The dollar is in a bubble. There are bubbles everywhere, and they're all going to pop. No, I forgot to mention it when I did my last podcast, but I talked about a speech uh, that President Trump made. And one of the things that he said with respect to negative interest rates, right? He was upset that we didn't have negative interest rates here in the United States. He talked about negative interest rates in Europe and his exact words were, give me some of that, right? I want that here. I want negative interest rates here in the US like they have them in in Europe. So Trump actually wants the Federal Reserve to be even more reckless than they already are. Quantitative easing isn't enough for Donald Trump. He wants negative interest rates. So even though he was extremely critical of Janet Yellen for doing political things, he wants Jerome Powell to be even more reckless and even more political for him so he can blow an even bigger bubble. And, you know, one of the things that Trump doesn't understand about negative interest rates is that the United States is benefiting from negative interest rates right now because negative interest rates are hurting the European economy. Now, maybe they are preventing a debt crisis or debt bubble from popping, right, which is going to happen eventually anyway, and the sooner the better. But in the interim, they are undermining the European economy. Investors are trying to flee negative yielding euros, right? And what are they doing? They're buying U.S. assets. They're buying some U.S. bonds, U.S. stocks. They are taking refuge in U.S. financial assets. So it's America that benefits from negative rates in Europe, not Europe, because it forces money into the United States. And so what is that doing for U.S. assets? That's helping to inflate this stock market bubble. That's helping to keep interest rates uh, artificially low. That's helping to prop up real estate prices and stock prices. So we are benefiting from negative rates by not having them.
If we actually had negative rates, just like Europe, those flows wouldn't be taking place. There would be no point in selling European assets for dollar assets if we had negative nominal rates here too. So we wouldn't be benefiting from it. So my guess would be our markets would be lower today. The U.S. economy would look even weaker because consumer spending would be lower if we had interest rates at negative or if the Europeans did not. So there again, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. In fact, you know, Trump is also promising. I you know, I just came out a, a few days ago, and I think Larry Kudlow is the point man on this too, but he is now dangling in front of the voters the prospects again of tax cuts 2.0. Now remember, he dangled this same carrot in front of the electorate for the midterms, right? He promised some tax cuts for the middle class before the midterms, and of course, they never happened. Now, of course, the Republicans lost the House, so that basically might have taken that off the table. But basically, they're going to do the same thing for the next election. Hey, vote Republican, vote for Trump, and we're going to cut your taxes. But the problem is tax cuts at this point amount to a fraud, right? They're simply the Republicans' version of a free lunch. It's something for nothing, right? The Democrats want to promise free government programs for nothing. But the Republicans want to promise tax cuts for nothing because the Republicans don't want to cut government spending. I mean, the, the irony is both the Democrats and the Republicans want more government. But, you know, the, the Democrats are kind of proud of the fact that they want more government. A lot of Republicans don't like to admit it, but they do because they refuse to cut any government spending. They constantly vote to increase government spending, even though they might have pretend for some of their constituents that they represent, you know, small government, limited government. That's not how they vote. They constantly vote for bigger and bigger government, but they also vote for tax cuts. So the Democrats promise bigger government and then they promise to tax the rich to pay for it. Right. So it's still something for nothing for the middle class and the poor. They're going to get more government. We're just going to force the rich to pay for it. But the Republicans promise more government and they say nobody has to pay for it. In fact, we're going to cut your taxes and give you more government. So intellectually, maybe the Democrats are a little bit less dishonest than the Republicans. But unfortunately, they always end up compromising. Right. The one thing they agree on is more government. So we always get that. And in the end, the compromise is going to be more government and higher taxes on everybody, not just higher taxes on the rich, but higher taxes on the middle class and the working poor as well. That's always what happens. And the taxes are either going to take the form of actual taxation or inflation, where the government creates money out of thin air and spends it. But again, when the government creates money and spends it, that's not a freebie either because it destroys the value of all the money that's out there, of all the savings, of all the wages, and it makes prices go up. And in fact, prices are going up as much as the government wants to deny it. You know, Donald Trump did his uh, another talk today, you know, about the great stock market. And uh, but he also talked about some new initiative that was going to be spearheaded, I guess, by Art Laffer, you know, who still owes me a penny from that bet that he lost and a note. But the president loves Art Laffer. Right. But of course, Art Laffer is clueless when it comes to uh, uh, economic forecasting. But apparently Art Laffer is going to help with this new program designed to uh, slow down the rate of increase in healthcare costs or medical costs. So I thought it was very interesting that in the CPI numbers that came out earlier this week, 
the annual increase in insurance costs, health insurance costs, was 20%. 20%. Now, I mentioned on the podcast that my personal insurance, my rate went up 30% in one year, right? But the I guess the national average, according to the government CPI numbers, is a 20% gain year over year. I mean, that is a huge increase in insurance premiums, 20%. I mean, I think insurance, uh, health insurance, rates are rising faster now that Trump is president than they were when uh, Obama was president. And one of the reasons for that is because they changed Obamacare. They didn't repeal it. They just changed it, and they actually made it worse. And how did they did they make it worse? They made it worse by eliminating the penalty for not buying insurance. So therefore, more and more healthy people are making the rational decision not to buy insurance because there's no penalty for not doing it. And since there's still a prohibition against insurance companies discriminating based on pre-existing conditions, if they get unlucky and they get really sick, well, then they'll just buy the insurance after the fact and the insurance companies can't charge any extra. So in the meantime, they can pocket all the costs that they're not spending on premiums. But the people who are already sick, well, they keep buying insurance. Well, since insurance companies keep getting fewer premiums from healthy people that they don't have to make payments on and more payments from sick people who keep putting in claims, well, the cost of insurance is going higher and higher. And so that is not going to stop. And I doubt anything that the president is going to do at this point is going to slow down uh, the increase in health care costs that he is helping to drive. And of course, now you have the Elizabeth Warrens of the world and the Bernie Sanders. Well, their solution is Medicare for all. And they don't understand that Medicare is already a big part of the problem. I mean, Medicare was a disaster. Medicare for all will be a bigger disaster. You know, all of the government's attempts to make health care more affordable is why it's so expensive. You know, the same thing with college. I've talked about this many, many times. But before the 1960s, before uh, the Great Society and Lyndon Johnson came in with Medicare, and of course the costs, you know, are 10 times, 20 times more than what they estimated. I mean, nothing was accurate with respect to what uh, the government promised. But before the government got involved, the free market did an excellent job of containing health care costs. We had great health care. It was affordable. It was accessible. But politicians began to use it uh, as a way to buy votes by promising that it would be cheaper if only the government would help. And now, of course, they've created a massive problem. Costs have skyrocketed. And now the solution is a complete government takeover, just like with education. They took education, a college degree, which was affordable, right? And they drove the cost through the roof while destroying the very value of the degree. And now the solution is to go all in on government. We need government to provide free college and we need government to provide free health care because college and health care are now so expensive because of government involvement. If the government wasn't involved, health care and college educations would be much less expensive. Uh, but the government screwed it up and now the government claims that, well, we need to get even more involved. Well, when they get more involved, if we get free college, if we get free health care completely from government, that's when the costs are really going to skyrocket, right? Because if you think college and healthcare are expensive now, where do you see how much more they cost when they're free?
But the bottom line is the economy hasn't changed since Trump was elected. We just have a bigger bubble. The only real difference between what's happening now and what's happening under Obama is we got the tax cuts. And so the deficits are even bigger now than they were then. In fact, we just got the October uh, deficit, uh, which is the first month of the new fiscal year. And the deficit was $134.5 billion, which represents a 34% increase over October of the year before. And we just finished a year where the official deficit was over $1 trillion. And of course, the unofficial deficit was much higher because so much of the spending isn't counted, right? But now, the first month of this fiscal year is already 34% higher than the first month of last fiscal year. So if that trend continues, we're easily looking at a $1.5 trillion official budget deficit in this fiscal year which means we're likely to have a budget deficit unofficial of over $2 trillion for the fiscal year. So we've just got a bigger bubble. We've got more reckless spending. And I bet that the total GDP growth, because that was one of Donald Trump's big promises, right? And, you know, what he told the Economic Club of New York, right, about how he's, you know, more than lived up, he's exceeded expectations, right? He was promising 4 and 5% GDP growth. I bet that by the end of this term, after four full years of Trump, that the total increase in GDP, the average annual rate for the four full years of Trump, will be lower than the average rate of GDP growth during the preceding four years of Barack Obama. Except that Donald Trump will have borrowed a lot more money than Obama did. So we would have achieved less phony growth but at a greater cost of debt. And the reason I'm saying that growth is phony is because it is not real. It's not the economy that's expanding. It's just an asset bubble and consumer spending being driven by asset bubbles and debt fueled by the Fed. The same thing that was happening before Trump was elected happened after he was elected. But but I I want to change gears a little bit and not talk about Trump so much, but talk about Powell because Powell testified this week in front of the Congress, in front of Congress, and again talked about how great the economy was or is and how it's in a good place and how everything is great and how there's nothing to worry about. You know, in fact, he he actually had the gall, though, uh, in the Q&A period uh, to mention, right, that, you know, we had uh, too much debt, right, that the national debt was on an unsustainable trajectory and that, you know, something needed to be done, right? And as if it was all about Congress, right? It It's the Fed that is enabling all the deficits. I mean, the Federal Reserve cannot call out Congress and say, hey, get your house in order. Uh, you have too much debt while they're doing quantitative easing, while they've got interest rates artificially low, because as long as they're doing that, Congress is never going to act responsibly, If the Fed gives them an easy way out, hey, don't worry, just run these big deficits because we got your back. I'm going to print money. I'm going to monetize the debts. I'm going to insulate you from the immediate negative consequences 
that you would normally see in rising interest rates and what that might do to the economy. So, hey, there's no incentive at all to do the right thing. Just keep doing the wrong thing because you'll keep getting reelected. So the Fed chairman is the last person who should be criticizing uh, Congress for the deficits because they are enabling the deficits. But of course, you know, they're all part of the problem. But one of the things that Powell said was an admission, right? Because he said that there's going to be a day of reckoning, right? He says that this, you know, we can't continue to grow the debt at the rate that we are. Now, he he said that we're never going to pay it off, right? <laughs> but he said, and he said, we don't have to. We just have to grow the economy faster than the debt, which we're not doing. Uh, and which will be impossible to do, especially if interest rates rise and the Fed loses control of rates, which it eventually will. But Powell did say that eventually there's going to be a day of reckoning. He just says that he thinks that day of reckoning is not going to happen for a long time, that it's a a ways away. I mean, how long that is, we don't know. But he said, look, it's a problem for the future. We don't have to worry about it now. Well, you know, that's just what uh, what Ben Bernanke said about subprime. Hey, don't worry about it. The problem is contained, right? Nothing to worry about. It's all contained. Well, he was completely wrong. Well, I think Powell is equally clueless, uh, minimizing this problem. I think he is wrong. I think the day of reckoning is going to happen a lot sooner than Powell thinks. You know, as always, kind of the one thing that Powell said was concerning him was the lack of inflation, the the idea that the inflation rate wasn't high enough, that, you know, the cost of living wasn't rising uh, as much as the Fed wants. So the Fed is concerned that uh, the inflation numbers may turn down. So it just wants to really make sure uh, that it, it achieves its 2% symmetrical mandate, which is to make sure that future inflation is enough above 2% to make up for all those years uh, that it was below 2%. And again, I don't believe there's a single person out there who shares the Fed's concern. There's nobody out there who goes to sleep every night worried that his cost of living is going to rise too slowly. Nobody is concerned about that except the Fed, which obviously is ridiculous. The Fed is not really concerned about that. The Fed is just using that as a way to disguise uh, its monetary policy. It wants inflation because it's afraid uh, of the opposite. It's afraid to allow the bubbles to deflate. It's afraid to force the government to deal uh, with an unsustainable uh, debt. And so it's going to create inflation in order to keep those problems at bay. But then it has to claim that it's doing us a favor by creating inflation. And when it comes to interest rates and, you know, why interest rates were low, uh, Powell did say it's a bit concerning that rates are low. And he's attributing this to just a new normal and it's a global phenomenon as if the Fed and other central banks have nothing to do with the fact that interest rates are so low. This is not a new normal. This is not this is not a creation of the market. It's a creation of the central banks. It's monetary policy that is driving interest rates lower. And to the extent that market participants get in front of the central banks, it's simply because they are anticipating central bank policy because they know how central banks are going to react because central banks have said that that's how they're going to react. So when investors see weakness in the economy that bankers deny for political reasons, then they react to that economic data based on their anticipation of what the Fed's going to do when they can no longer deny the obvious.
And in fact, I think somebody even asked a pal, you know, expressed concern. Hey, you know, you haven't been able to hit your inflation target, right? You, we don't have as much inflation as you want. Why is that? And, and Powell basically said, you know, we're going to be researching that. Like, like the Fed is going to be looking into why they haven't succeeded, right? Despite all this QE and all this money printing, right? Why have they been so unsuccessful in creating inflation? Which, of course, is all BS because they have succeeded in creating inflation because the expansion of the money supply is inflation, right? What, what's happened is there's potentially a disconnect between the creation of inflation and the effect it has on prices, right? And so the Fed is going to try to research, we've created all this inflation, but why hasn't the CPI risen faster as a result of all the inflation that we've created? Well, one reason is because the CPI isn't honest, because the CPI was designed deliberately to understate inflation so that the public wouldn't know it was as, was as bad as it was. So that's one reason. But again, another reason is because they're looking in the wrong places. They got to look at asset prices. The Fed has been very successful when it comes to pushing up asset prices. A lot of the inflation that the Fed created is in the stock market, bond market, real estate market. So that's where it is, right? And, and so, but people are happy about that. They don't consider rising asset prices inflation, but that's what it is. Now, if asset prices are rising, uh, for fundamental reasons, because the earnings are rising and so the assets are more valuable because they're generating more earnings, that's different. That's not why uh, stock prices are rising. The PEs are going up. Stocks are more expensive because inflation has driven up prices, because that's where the money has flown, because that's how it's entered the system. But ultimately, all that money is going to make its way into consumer prices. There's just a longer lag than had been the case in the past between the creation of inflation, quantitative easing, and the effect that inflation has on the overall cost of living. Because right now, you know, there is kind of like a roundabout path to get there because we took the... Uh, the route through asset prices, uh, and so that slowed it down. But the inflation is there, right? But the Fed is pretending that it's going to do a study. There's no way it's going to study this, right? The Fed doesn't want to study uh, inflation. The Fed doesn't want to figure out why uh, the, the CPI isn't moving up faster than it is. The Fed is more concerned about covering up how much inflation we have than exposing it. The whole, the whole discussion was comical. No, another thing uh, that Powell claimed credit for uh, during his uh, testimony, or actually during the Q&A, was the length of the expansion. They were talking about the current expansion and how long it is and how you know the expansions uh, have been longer now than they had been in the past. And the reason is the central bankers are more reckless now than they were in the past. They're willing to do things that other central bankers just didn't want to do. And so we've been willing to make greater sacrifices of our long-term economic health to goose the markets in the short run and to keep these phony expansions going. But the fact that we're able to keep the expansion going longer ultimately turns out to be a bad thing because all we're doing is allowing the disease to get worse while we are delaying taking the cure. Right. So this is all problematic. This is nothing that they should be bragging about. This is a problem. Of course, a lot of the questions that are being asked 
uh, by the you know members of Congress are merely uh, you know just PR stunts. They're all uh, speaking to their base, their campaign sound bites. And one of the topics that was mentioned quite often by the Democrats was the minimum wage. Right? They wanted to talk about the minimum wage. And you know when when he, when Powell was asked about the minimum wage, he basically said, "I have no comment." Right? He says that that's that's up to you guys. That's up to Congress, and I don't want to step on any toes. So I'm not going to make any comments on a particular policy like the minimum wage, which, you know, I think is actually one of the things that um, Powell should be talking about, because the Fed always talks about the mandate, the dual mandate of price stability, which has now been redefined as prices that go up by more than 2% a year. But the other mandate is employment, full employment, right? And one of the factors that would influence employment is a minimum wage. So you would think that Powell would have something to say about the minimum wage. Because after all, the higher the minimum wage is set, the more unemployment that minimum wage creates. And of course, also, it may have some bearing on prices, right? The, the labor costs or an import cost that you know go into final prices. And so you know he may uh, want to speak about wages from that angle as well as it affects uh, the inflation rate. Of course, the inflation is not driven uh, by rising wages. It's driven by monetary policy. Uh, but certainly, you know, the way the Keynesians look at the world, uh, you know, and they, they talk about wage push inflation, right? You'd think the Fed would be concerned about rising wages causing rising prices, even though that's not really what causes it. That's what these central bankers always talk about. So you would figure that this is exactly in uh, the Fed chairman's ballywick to talk about uh, the minimum wage. But he's afraid to talk about it because Powell knows that if he talks about the minimum wage, he has to come out against it. He has to tell these Democratic congressmen, hey, you idiots, you know, the minimum wage is causing unemployment. The minimum wage is throwing people out of work. But he doesn't want to do that. So he just he, he just pretends that it's not, you know, a part of his job description to comment on the minimum wage, even though one of the Fed's mandates is unemployment. Right. And then you have all these uh, congressmen who are talking about the minimum wage and they, they kept bringing up the minimum wage in the context of the gap, the wealth disparity gap right between the rich and the poor. And they keep saying that we have this big wealth gap. We have all these rich people and these poor people. And they say that raising the minimum wage is their solution to narrowing that gap. Right. They want to increase minimum wage so that the bottom end will make more and that will somehow close the gap, right? The wealth gap between the rich and the poor. And of course, if you really are concerned about closing that gap, the last thing that you would want to do is raise the minimum wage because now you make it harder for people to climb up the job ladder, right? When every time you raise the minimum wage, you raise the bottom rung of the job ladder. And now fewer people are able to reach that bottom rung and start to climb up. And so what is going to enable people to have higher incomes is if they can acquire more skills, if they can make themselves more productive. How do they do that? They get a job, any job, and then they learn on the job. They acquire more skills, and then they can get raises, and then they can get offers from other employers for better jobs based on the work experience and the skills they've learned at their current job. And they can start climbing up the job ladder and earning more money. 
But if you cut off the bottom rung, if you forever condemn them to unemployment and government welfare, well, then you're not going to be able to close that gap, right? And so the very policy that they're advocating to narrow the gap is what is going to widen it. Of course, you know, that is always the irony of all this stuff. You have Elizabeth Warren out there, and I, you know, I see she's running her new commercials now uh, on CNBC calling for the wealth tax and, and calling out all these billionaires, right, who aren't paying their fair share. And you've got all these young people just applauding. Yeah, this is great. Let's tax the rich, right? They're not paying their fair share. And of course, this is an example. This is why we're not supposed to be a democracy. We're, we, were, we were established as a republic for a reason. Elizabeth Warren is the reason. Bernie Sanders is the reason, right? You don't want a democracy because you elect people like that. That is part of the problem. Now, of course, we do have a constitution that prohibits the type of wealth tax uh, that uh, Warren and Sanders want to impose. So maybe the Supreme Court will do its job and protect us from that tax, even if they win. But that's part of the reason that we're a republic. We don't just do what the, the idiots in the majority want to do. We're supposed to protect the rights of the minority and billionaires fall into a minority. But you know what? If you don't want to protect the rights of billionaires, the next thing you know, it's your rights that are going to come under attack because the people who are going to suffer the most from the wealth tax are not going to be the billionaires who end up paying it or doing whatever they can to avoid paying it. It's going to, it's going to be the very young people who are cheering on Elizabeth Warren and cheering on Bernie Sanders. They are going to suffer from the wealth tax because it's going to prevent them from becoming wealthy themselves or dramatically diminish the odds that they will become wealthy. Why is that? It is the wealth that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders want to destroy. That is the wealth that leads to a rising standard of living, that leads to opportunities for young people because that wealth finances capital investment. It finances innovation, research and development. The reason young entrepreneurs can start companies is because billionaires have money to invest, money they didn't spend, money they didn't pay in taxes. That accumulated capital is the seed corn of economic growth. It is the reason that we have the standard of living that we do. Without it, right, you kill the goose that lays the golden egg. And, you know, you've got all these young people, right, vilifying these billionaires. Yet everything that they have, everything that they value, all of the products that make their lives better are here because of millionaires and billionaires, right? How did people become millionaires and billionaires other than inheriting it when most people didn't inherit their billions? But even if they inherited it, they inherited it from somebody who made it. Somebody had to make the money and then not spend it. But... The way you make a lot of money is to come up with a bright idea, build a better mousetrap, right? Uh, create a product or provide a service that people value and that they're willing to buy. And people wouldn't buy your product or your service unless they believed it was improving their lives. Because if they didn't, they wouldn't buy it, right? It's a voluntary exchange. If somebody gives a businessman money, it's because they believe they're getting something of greater value in return. And so people are getting rich by enriching others, right? So the billionaires are the ones who have contributed the most 
because they've made the most money. That's like keeping score. How much money you've made is a function of how much you've contributed, as long as it's done honestly in a free and open market. Now, look, yes, there are some people that benefit from government subsidies and government bailouts, which is another reason we don't want government subsidies and government bailouts because it makes all the good guys look bad and you know it creates that weapon that could be used against them. But what if all these young people created, right? People who are college students or just graduating, they haven't contributed anything. They've just been taking from society. They've been taken from their parents, right? They're taking from the government. They haven't contributed anything yet. Now, maybe they will, but as of now, they've contributed nothing. They're benefiting from the contributions that other people have made. Yet they want to vilify those other people? What has Elizabeth Warren contributed? Absolutely nothing. Yet somehow she's amassed millions. She's got, what, a $15, $20 million net worth as a teacher? I mean, how did she make that money? Obviously through political connections, right? That's how she was able to make it. But these billionaires and millionaires made it the honest way. Uh, And she is just stoking this class warfare. But this is exactly what the founding fathers warned about. This is why they said, we have made you a a republic if you can keep it because we know what happens when you have a democracy. And this is also, I mean, we had some democratic elements in the American Republic. I mean, we did vote uh, for uh, members of the House of Representatives and individual states had, you know, elected offices, but we didn't let kids vote. (laughs) I mean, the initial voting age was 21. These idiot Democrats want to lower it to 16, although they're not idiots because they know if they lower it to 16, those 16-year-olds are going to vote Democrat. But the reason you don't want kids voting is because they're going to vote Democrat because they don't know any better. That's the problem. You know, they're susceptible to this nonsense. You know, they believe all this crap, especially now when they've been indoctrinated on American universities with all this liberal nonsense, right? That's why they're voting for Sanders and and, and Warren. So they shouldn't be voting, right? The voting age was 21. I've said before, we need to raise it. Minimum of 28, maybe 30. I mean, what, when it was 21, Right. Initially, when it was 21, back in the birth of the republic, think about your typical 21 year old who was going to vote. He was probably already married. And if it was a woman, she was definitely married. Right. A couple of kids. The average uh, person probably started working at 13 or 14. Right. So you got people that have been in the workforce that are collecting paychecks, that are raising families. And now they can finally vote. Right. Today. Has the typical 21-year-old ever had a job? No, he's still in school. Doesn't have a family. He's still living with his parents. Maybe he went to college uh, or he's still in college, but he's never worked. He's always just been supported by somebody and and he has no real-world experience. He's never paid any taxes. These people shouldn't be voting. They don't have enough experience to vote. They don't have enough knowledge. Wait until they've actually had a job, paid taxes, to understand and appreciate the cost of government, and then they should be allowed to vote. Because remember, the goal is not to have everybody vote. That's for idiots. The goal is good government. And you don't get good government by letting young young kids vote, right? That's not how you get good government. You get good government by having responsible people vote and by making sure that people don't vote until they are. That's, that, that's what made this country great. It wasn't letting kids vote. 
But that's what they want to do. And you can see who are all the kids voting for? Who are the young people voting for? They're voting for these charlatans. They're voting for these fools because they don't have enough life experience to understand any better. And they vote with their hearts. Right. They, they they don't use their head. They use their hearts. They use their emotion because, you know, when you're young, that's all you've got to go on. And you think everybody else is just clueless or mean. Right. You know, you're you know, you're like you're this generation is the smartest generation ever. Right. Like the, like 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 nobody ever thought of socialism before. Like they, they, they they're the first ones to come up with it. Right. They don't have any idea that every time it's been tried, it's been a miserable failure. It's never lived up to its promises. It's always made the people that it was promising to enrich poorer. They don't get that. And they discount the wisdom of other people like these millionaires and billionaires. And now the fact that you have a lot of these guys calling out Warren, well, that just makes her uh, feel even stronger. Aha. You know, they're fighting back, you know, because they don't want me to, you know, to, to take their two cents. Right. The billionaires, the power, you know, and that's just going to only embolden her and, and her and her core followers uh, to cheer her on to believe all this nonsense. You know, while I'm on the, the topic of universities, I read that a couple of Ivy League colleges, Princeton and Brown University, and what they announced is they're no longer going to require standardized tests for their graduate school program. So normally when you, you get your undergraduate degree and now you want to go for a graduate degree, and of course, one of the reasons that people need graduate degrees is because a regular you know undergraduate degree is basically worthless now because everybody has one. Right. They're very expensive, but everybody gets one. And so if everybody has one, you don't really stand out by having one. So now if you want to stand out in the job market, well, now you have to go and get a master's degree. But there generally there's two criteria. Right. They look at your GPA in college, but they also have uh, standardized tests that are geared for particular subjects, you know, whether it's the, the doctors take the MCATs or the law school, there's the LSATs, I forget. So there's different uh, standardized tests that you take depending on what type of uh, master's program you're, you're trying to apply for. And so then, you know, they, they, the colleges look at your, your stats and determine whether or not they're going to offer admission. Well, apparently, uh, the Ivy League colleges are noticing that not as many minorities as they want are being able to meet the standards. And so basically what they're saying now is, well, you know, these tests must be racist. That must be it. They must be racist tests. And so, you know, even though the people who are taking them have graduated college, right, these are college grads, right, who are taking these tests. Uh, but somehow the tests are still racist enough that African-Americans or whoever are not able to do as well. And so now they're not even going to require the tests at all, I guess, from for these applicants. I don't think they're going to discontinue the tests for everybody. I think they're saying they're just not going to require uh, the minority applicants to take these tests so they can admit them, even though they would not score uh, high enough on the test to gain admission. Now, of course, this is going to backfire like every, you know, program or this is not a government program, but this is a university, you know, just trying to, you know, do the politically correct thing by just giving degrees uh, to people who are not otherwise qualified. Right. And I'm sure when they start allowing 
uh, people into their programs who really don't have the aptitude for them, they're probably going to have to find ways to let them pass and let them graduate, right? Even though they really shouldn't be getting the degree, uh, but you know they're not going to want to flunk them because that would be racist as well. But here's going to be the problem now. So if you know, and I don't know if all the Ivy League schools are going to do this. I mean, so far now I've just it's just Pris to the Brown. But this is how it would impact me, right? If I was uh, you know, an employer uh, looking to hire uh, grad students, right? And there was a minority applicant, let's say an African-American, and he says, oh, I, I went to Princeton or I went to Brown. I would just completely dismiss the relevance of that degree. I wouldn't even look at that guy. I would just look for somebody else because the minute you see uh, that they came from that college, well, then what good is the degree? You know, I mean, because, you know, hey, they just, you know, they just let you in there because of your race. I have no idea if you actually learned anything. So I'm just going to look for somebody else. I'm going to look for a candidate who graduated from a university that treats everybody equal. See, because if you are a competent African-American who otherwise could pass the requirements, who could do well on the standardized test, right? If you as an African-American could gain admittance to Princeton or Brown without any special help, right? You're, you're actually, the value of your degree in the eyes of other people is going to be diminished. And it's not because the other people are racist. If, if they know that Princeton is doing this, that Brown is doing this, then that's what they're going to expect. And the problem is, right, not every, not every African-American is going to gain entrance due to lax standards. But how do you know that as an employer? You just see the resume Right. And, oh, you know, you, you just you just make a logical assumption. So what I would do then. So if I was African-American, I would not apply if I knew I had the scores, if I had a good GPA, I had good standardized tests. I would cross Brown and Princeton off my list because I wouldn't want that stigma to follow me after I graduated. Right. And so ultimately, it's the colleges that hold African-Americans the same standard as everybody else or whoever else is included in that minorities. I'm not really sure Hispanics or who else is in there, right? But that's where all the competent ones are going to go. And all the incompetent ones are going to go to the schools that are letting letting them in anyway. And, and then the degrees are going to mean nothing because everybody is going to know what happened, right? And, 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 and this is always... Uh, the result of all this affirmative action nonsense. It always backfires and hurts the people uh, that they are intending to help. But I wanted to finish up this podcast just, uh, you know, talking a little bit about uh, Bernie Ebers. I was just hearing about this for the first time today. And, you know, if you don't remember Bernie Ebers, uh, he was the CEO of WorldCom. Uh, that was one of the casualties of the stock market bubble that popped 2000, 2001. Uh, you know, there was an accounting scandal at Enron. The thing blew up uh, and he was sentenced to 25 years in jail. A very, very harsh sentence for, you know, a white collar crime. And of course, there's a lot of accounting fraud. A lot of bad accounting went on during the dot-com bubble and hardly anybody was held accountable. There's a lot of accounting fraud going on now. In fact, the biggest hypocrites of all is the government. I mean, the government puts people in jail for cooking the books when they cook the books more than anybody. I mean, again, Bernie Madoff said the same thing about the government running the biggest Ponzi scheme, and it does. And again, I talked earlier about the national debt, and they don't 
report that accurately. They cook those books. Uh, you know, so everything the government does is fraudulent. They're completely dishonest in everything that they report. Uh, yet they put people in jail who do the same thing in the private sector that they do in the public sector. But, you know, he got a 25 year sentence and he began serving it in 2006. And so he's been in jail for 13 years. The guy is 78 years old and in very ill health. And his family is trying to get him out on compassionate release due to the fact that he is very ill and may not live very long. He certainly won't live long enough to see the end of his sentence, which was a 25-year sentence. So they're asking the Bureau of Prisons just to release him on time served for compassionate release. Now, you know, this is very similar. The reason I'm pointing it out, too, is it's very similar to what happened to my father. In fact, he's in the same institute in Fort Worth, Texas. He's at the same hospital where my father died. And my father had a 13-year sentence, uh, and uh, we tried to get him out on compassionate release, and he had been in jail for about 11 years. I think he had about two years left to go on his sentence. Uh, and, you know, they don't have parole there. You know, on the fe- you have to serve pretty much your whole sentence. They, they, they can let you out a little bit for good time, uh, but it's, you know, you end up serving more than 90% of your sentence. Uh, it's not like the state crimes where you, you get out in a very short period of time. Uh, but we have the same problem with the Bureau of Prisons. Now, uh, Bernie Ebers, apparently, he's legally blind. Well, my dad was legally blind. I guess that's something that happens to you under government care is you go blind. But Ebers is legally blind. He's lost a lot of weight, apparently. He's very, very thin. He's got heart problems. Not too long ago, he was beaten up uh, pretty badly by another inmate because he inadvertently bumped into that inmate in the hall because he's blind and he couldn't see where he was walking. And, and I guess that inmate didn't cut him any slack. And so, you know, he has bruises there. But he's in very ill health. Uh, and they're trying to get him out. And the Bureau of Prisons is like, no, no, no. I mean, we don't think he's really that sick or maybe he's faking it. And so he's still in jail. And, you know, when my father was given a terminal diagnosis, he was given six months to live because he had lung cancer. And I tried to get him out on compassionate release because he wasn't going to live long enough to see the end of his prison sentence. And he was 87 at the time. He was supposed to get released when he was about 90, and he wasn't going to make it. So even with a six-month diagnosis from the prison doctors or the doctors in the hospital associated with the prison, I still couldn't get my dad out of jail so he can die you know, at home, so he can die among his uh, family members. And that would have even saved the government money because then the health care would have been on my dime instead of on the prison dime, but I still couldn't get him out. And I really feel for the family of, uh, of Bernie Ebers. I know how they must feel. I mean, because I felt the way they feel. I mean, it's hard knowing that your father is dying uh, behind bars uh, when he could at least spend the last months of his life. I mean, I'll, maybe he has more than that. I don't know. But I think he served his time, 13 years. I think he's paid his debt. He's a white-collar criminal. He's not a risk to anybody. He's not going to go out and be a repeat offender, right? Nobody is going to be harmed if Bernie Ebers is let out of jail. And what are they worried about? He might not die right away. He might live for a few more years and then die. I mean, he's 78, you know. And, you know, my dad, I mean, they, I, mean I don't know if they didn't believe how sick he was. Because I remember I got a call 
from somebody from the Bureau of Prisons uh, about you know the forms that I had submitted and 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 you know and I said look it's too late my dad my dad's about to die I mean it was the day that he died right the whole process takes forever just to even try to get a compassionate release but the reason my dad got lung cancer and if you don't know the story I talked about it before but I wrote an article uh, you can read it at Shift Radio Death of a Patriot I uh, read that article that I wrote about my dad's death. And, you know, if you don't know anything about my dad, you can learn a lot about him. Go to his website is still up, uh, paynoincometax.com. You know, I don't advocate that you follow his advice and pay no income tax other than move to Puerto Rico and pay no income tax. Uh, but that's not uh, the, the, the method that my dad was advocating. So to the extent that you read his stuff, read it just to learn. It's for educational purposes only, not tax advice. But the reason that my dad got lung cancer was because he had skin cancer and it was never diagnosed. The doctors in the prison didn't even bother to diagnose or treat his skin cancer. And so they allowed it to go untreated for so long that it had spread all over his body to his lungs and everywhere. Because I talked about that with the doctors at the hospital. They were kind of embarrassed. In fact, in fact, I think they, they showed me the x-rays. And I think they, didn't, they weren't even supposed to. Because they're, you know, they're trying to keep this whole thing under wraps, right? Because it's really a scandal. I mean, I would have sued uh, the government for wrongful death. Except I don't even want to bother uh, you know, wasting my time in a lawsuit. I've got other things I want to spend my time doing. But it was negligence. But you know, the reason that my dad was there... Right, because he was in Fort Worth, Texas, because they said he was so old, he needed to be in a place that had better medical facilities. That that's why he couldn't be in New York. He was in a prison for a while here in New York, where it was very easy for me to visit him and other family members to visit him. But they had to take him far away from his family because they needed to give him health care. And then they gave him no health care whatsoever. Uh, they didn't treat his skin cancer and they didn't even bother to diagnose his cancer until he was months away from death. And so he died, uh, yet the, the prison, on his deathbed, he was handcuffed to the bed. The handcuff was around his ankle, right? not around his, his hand, but obviously uncomfortable. My father can't move. He's breathing through a tube down his throat. So there is no reason for the handcuff. In addition, because he can't move, he can't go to the bathroom, so he's peeing and pooping through tubes that are also shoved into his body. So he's attached to all these tubes. He can't possibly get out of the bed. And he's 87, yet they have a handcuff on him. And as if the handcuff is not enough, there is an armed guard in the room at the whole time, the whole time. like he's going to escape. How's he going to escape? How's he going to get out of that cuff, right? Armed guard. This is your government. This is how the government operates. That's government compassion. If you think government is compassion, if you think government gives a damn about you, take a look at how they treat uh, the people that they're in care of because the government is in charge of the prisons, right? And this is how they treat the inmates. My dad was 87. He was a nonviolent convict, yet this is uh, how the government treats him. And this is also a great example of health care. Because my father got government health care and he died. Right? If my father was not in prison and he could have seen a private doctor, he would have treated his skin cancer and my dad would probably still be alive today enjoying his grandchildren. But because the government was in charge of my father's health care, he got no health care and he died prematurely. But also the other point is this whole prison uh, system 
needs to be reformed, right? There is no reason to keep elderly patients in jail until they die, right? Even if they were convicted of violent crimes, right? I mean, especially nonviolent. But you have a guy that might have committed a crime in their 20s and 30s, and they're in jail in their 80s, and they're very sick. Let them out. What is the big deal? Can't they spend their last few years with a little bit of freedom, have a little bit of dignity before they die? Let them have a chance uh, to spend some time with the families that they barely even know because they've been in jail so long? I mean, can't we as a society have some mercy? I mean, I don't think that people who commit crimes should not be punished. Yes, punish them, right? But at some point, they've paid their debt, right? And not only is it the compassionate thing to do, not only is it the right thing to do, but it saves the government money. The government is spending a fortune taking care of octogenarians. If the families are willing to shelter the costs, then let them do it. Release them. They are not a threat. One of the reasons that you imprison people is because they're a threat to society. They've committed violent crimes, and so we lock them up so they can't commit more crimes. Well, once they reach a certain age, they're not going to commit crimes anymore. So there is no threat. The other reason, of course, is to punish them. Well, they've been punished. The third reason is as a deterrent, right? Right. You want to deter other people from committing crimes, so you make an example by putting criminals in prison. Yes, to a point. If someone's been in jail their whole life, I don't think letting them out when they're dying is going to suddenly cause a crime spree. Oh, I'm going to commit crime now because you know when I'm in my 80s, I won't have to stay in jail. I'll be able to come out. When, you, when you're locked up for your youth, right, for the years where you really want to be free, right, a lot of the people who aren't in jail, who are in their 80s, who are in these convalescent homes, it's almost like being in jail, especially, you know, the jail my dad was in, you know, was, you know, these minimum security jails. So let them out. Let them be with their family. So, and I, you know, I, I hope uh, that Evers is released. I hope that uh, the Bureau of Prisons does the right thing for him. You know, it's too late for my father. Uh, but, you know, I feel for the circumstances of uh, the Evers family. And yes, I understand people lost money, you know, buying WorldCom stock, right? And, you know, people are going to lose money on a lot of stocks. There's a lot of bubbles out there. You know, uh, the Fed inflated a lot of bubbles uh, and a lot of people are going to lose money. I get it. Some people lost money on WorldCom, um, you know, but that doesn't mean you have to hold a grudge. And that doesn't mean you want to wish that the CEO of WorldCom has to die in prison uh, because you bought into a bubble. Oh,